that the person who lives for God's glory and expects to be glorified by God as a result is the person who is living, who's truly working and walking in the day. The person who is is compelled by the fear of death and by earthly consequences, whose life is about deciding what their what risks there are and trying to ensure the at least the longest possible lifespan here, that person is already walking as though they were dead. As we continue into John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, we're going to take up this notion of, of Jesus as the shepherd who protects his sheep, as he said in John 10, 27 through 28, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That sounds like Jesus is declaring his intention to care for the sheep and to protect them as their shepherd. Ironically, the very in the very next chapter, in John chapter 11, verse 1, we see that there's a man named Lazarus who was sick. So Jesus has been saying, my sheep are safe. And here we find one of Jesus' inner circle is, is now ill. Something has stricken him and um, on Jesus' watch. So what do, are we to make of that? Well, as we go into John chapter 11, 1 through 16, we'll see that John structures his narrative in this way, that, that we're supposed to feel that tension between Jesus' promise of safety in John 10 and the events that take place in John 11. And so as we get into John 11, the, the theme statement for this passage, John 11, 1 through 16, is this. By faith we live if we live by faith and don't die of doubt. Uh, let's take that apart. By faith we live. Uh, John 11, 1, again, we, we're told that a certain man was ill. He was sick. Now the word for sick here is the same one used in John chapter 4, 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick. And so this official comes to Jesus, asks for his help. And Jesus' response to this diagnosis, this boy is sick, is this. Go, Jesus replied in John 4:50. your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. So the solution to the sickness was life. So the word here, asthenos, it has to do with, with weakness and that sickness, illness in the ancient Near East and in that day is this death is, is encroaching or weakness is increasing to the point that a person eventually will not be able to keep themselves alive, that strength would diminish to the point that a person could no longer maintain their autonomic functions and would have to pass away. And that's where Lazarus is. That's how sick he is, that life is being drained from him. Physical life is being drained from him. But Jesus takes the, the news of Lazarus's sickness as an opportunity to teach a message about life and what life is about. So he says in John eleven four, 4, 
This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So it seems that Jesus has made a prediction about Lazarus's illness, almost like he did with the boy in Cana where he says that he's going to live. And so he says that Lazarus, he's going to live. But what we discover in John eleven fourteen 14 is, is that he died. And Jesus knew that. And uh, so in John eleven fourteen, 14, he tells his disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. So which one is it? You know, has Jesus just been, did he just call it wrong? Uh, or what does he mean to be saying? Uh, and Jesus has said similar things about life and death. Um, and in John chapter 8, 49 through 51, there, the, his audience who are believing Jews were told in John 8, 30 that they're, that they're believers, 8, 30 and 31. These people are believing Jews and yet He's been offering them freedom. They get angry. Now they want to kill him over it. And um, they're critiquing him. And and they've accused him of being demon-possessed. So everything went sideways really fast there. Um, but in John 8, 49 through 51, Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. So Jesus says that this sickness will not end in death. But what he means is no sickness will end in death. That for those who believe in him, there is no longer any such thing as terminal illness. But that the person will graduate into life. Uh, should their body become so weak. But this sickness that Lazarus had, while it seems to, according to Jesus, have posed no risk to Lazarus, um, could have potentially posed a, a physical risk to Jesus himself because we see that this sick man was from Bethany. And in John eleven eighteen, 18, uh, we, we see John tells us that Bethany was just two miles from Jerusalem. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, in John 10, 31, we see that G, uh, his Jewish opponents in Jerusalem picked up stones to stone him. And then 10, 39 through 40, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Je then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and there he stayed. So just as in John 7, where Jesus' brothers had, had been encouraging him, you need, to, you need to go to Jerusalem if you want to be known. And, and Jesus had stayed away because of the threat posed by the uh, Jewish people there and the leaders. Now Jesus has once again fled that area because people had deadly intent toward him. And, uh, and he's found a fruitful ministry out in the wilderness, outside of their grasp, in a different uh, region of the area beyond their jurisdiction across the Jordan. He's now physically safe, and he is finding a fruitful ministry among people who are ready to hear him. And in the midst of this faithful ministry, just a short time into it, in this fruitful and ministry that is safe and flourishing, 
he gets the news. And so in John 11, 1 through 3, we get the whole story as far as how Jesus is notified about Lazarus. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So these aren't just random people. These are his inner circle. These are the ones he's closest to. It's in their home that he found um, lodging after his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. These people have been by his side. They've been his supporters. They are among his closest friends. And so when Lazarus becomes sick, Martha and Mary send a a messenger with a message to him, and this is it. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Keep in mind that this message is coming to Jesus as he is standing within throngs of believing devotees, of adherents. John 10, 41 through 42 says many people came to him out there in the wilderness. And they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. And so here is Jesus and people are hearing him. People have these high expectations. They have a high regard for him. And in the middle of that, here comes this message that says, the one you love is sick. Now that's a dilemma. Is Jesus going to go back to Jerusalem, in the region of Jerusalem, with likely a horde of these people? Um, Really, by all appearances, to be uh, staging an invasion, uh, you know, there's, there's a real danger not only to him, but to those who are around him in going to Jerusalem. Or is he, you know, is he going to stay there and ignore the needs of, of his closest, some of his closest friends? And so Jesus is, is, from our perspective, he's in a dilemma. He's being put, uh, in, pitted between his reputation and how he comes across as a, uh, a loving and caring person, even as he has said, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I take care of my sheep. Uh, or is he going to be, um, is he going to go back and, and then risk harm and, uh, to himself and others to do something perhaps very foolish uh, in going back, and that's now he's, he's in a dilemma. But in John 11, verses 4 through 6, we'll see what Jesus does. You know, we would say, well, is Jesus going to stay or is he going to go? And, and Jesus does both. In John 11, uh, 4, it says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, We've been saying that Jesus is redefining life, what it means to be alive. And Jesus himself is alive. How is Jesus alive? Jesus is alive because of what he's living for and how he is living. The people around Jesus are concerned about just prolonging their physical existence, but Jesus has a different purpose for life. He has a reason for living that seems to transcend what humans down here would do. And here it is. Uh, We've already said it once, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That the life of faith is a life lived for God's glory 
And by that I mean by the performing of his will, by doing his works, whether we get credit for it or not, but so that God's work might be manifested during our lifetime and that in response, God will glorify the vessel, the one who is glorifying him, that that is the inner life of the Trinity, of this mutual glorification that's going on, and that is eternal living. That's the kind of life that's eternal. If you remember back in John 8, where Jesus had said, the one that lives and and believes in me will never die, right before that he said, I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And then he goes on to say that he, you know, that is the essence. He goes on and says, the one who obeys my word will never see death. The one that lives by that mantra, that's real life, and it can't be taken away from the person who lives by it. And so while he knows for a fact that Lazarus's physical life is going to come to an end, even in his death, he's going to be an instrument for God's glory and that God would be glorified through him and that he would be glorified through God. And so that takes away this dilemma. When the purpose of life becomes God's glory, then we are free to love other people, but we're free to love them without being subject to them. I don't know if Martha and Mary meant to be manipulative by, you know, announcing the one you love is sick. I know that they had a real need, and yet Jesus didn't have to respond immediately to that need because his primary was God. That is the glory of God, and everything is under that. It's subject to it. Even love for our brother and sister is subject to that, to this heartbeat of life that is glorify God and be glorified by him. And so in John 11, uh, 5, he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Get this. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So it wasn't a dilemma. It wasn't Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but... He stayed where he was. No, so he stayed where he was because of his love for them. And this is uh, an important and profound lesson, especially as we give ourselves to the cause of loving our brother and sister. We have to understand that that cause is always subordinate to love for God, to the call to glorify God. If we forget that that is the primary, then what we will find is that we neither love God nor our brother or sister. We start to curry favor with them. We start to play politics. We end up in codependent webs of relationships that cause harm to all sides as we begin to just respond to the manipulation, the demands of those who are in our inner circle, and we stop loving them. Jesus, because he loved these people, refrained from instantly 
responding to their request. John makes this explicit in his letter in 1 John 5, 1 through 3. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So there's this life that comes out of faith. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well, of course. But how do we love the child? He says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Jesus didn't have a specific written command here on wait two days before going. Jesus is being led by the Holy Spirit, and it is through that surrender to God, that desire to glorify God, that he truly loved his brothers, uh, his brother and sisters in this case. And so John makes that explicit. He says, this is how we love them, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. So yeah, loving one another, but we only love each other under our love for God as it is an expression of our love for God. We don't allow ourselves to become enslaved by the demands of even our brothers and sisters uncritically. We have to have this life within us, and this life is rooted in faith. It's not just love. It is faith working through love. And unfortunately, sometimes I think in the Christian movement that people will um, think that love is something that is, is addressed to their own will and that they have to do everything that seems loving and that they're so easily manipulated because if somebody says, well, I thought you were a Christian. If you love me, you would do this. And now they have to do it, even though it may not be helpful to that person and it's not helpful to them, but they've got to do it because now they're over a barrel because they said they were supposed to be loving. That's not the kind of love that the gospel calls us to that we are called to a love that streams out of faith, that that love is the life, but that life comes from faith first. And so Jesus is models that. He shows us what is this life of faith. It is a life that casts itself on God's glory with the trust that God himself will reciprocate that glory. That's life. And that is a part and parcel of loving others, but it is primary to that. And and so by faith, we live, truly live, if we live by faith. And so as we continue in John 11, verses 7 through 8, it says, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again? So they're on this, uh, they're living by this protocol that I think everybody can understand. And that is, don't do something that is going to be um, almost assuredly going to result in your death, right? Uh, That survival is the purpose of life. And that is, uh, you know, if you can do other things along the way, that's good. But, you know, if you want to get anything done, you certainly don't want to do something that might result in the end of your life because then what good can you do, right? And so the disciples are expressing what I think most people in the world would have expressed and what most of us would counsel other people toward. You know, don't don't go back there. That is not safe. It's not safe for you. It's not safe for us. It's not safe for these other people. They were just now trying to stone you. They haven't gotten past it. They haven't forgotten They're just waiting for you to come back. Don't go there. 
And uh, so Jesus responds this way. He says, aren't there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, what does Jesus mean about this? Well, the, the most uh, faithful and reliable way to ascertain uh, the meaning of, of figures and forms is to use the immediate context, right? And, and so in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, a very similar instance where Jesus gives sight to this man born blind, um, there's this whole dialogue. And so they, as says in John 9, 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Again, there's this glorification of God. And then he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of God, uh, works of him who sent me. And so as we become the, the agents of God's will and work, we are glorified by God as we glorify him. And he says, night is coming when no one can work. Now, in this case, he clearly means his own physical death. He's saying, I only have so long to work until night falls, right? And so for Jesus, day is, is to be alive, to be standing up, to be above ground and sucking wind. Night is death, right? He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So to be alive is to be in the day. To be at night is to be dead. Now, Jesus, but Jesus has said that the one, he says, aren't there 12 hours in a day, walk in the day. Here's what I think Jesus is telling us, that as long as you are alive physically, you should live as though you are alive spiritually, that you should walk like a living person while you are physically alive, that the person who lives for God's glory and expects to be glorified by God as a result is the person who is living, who's truly working and walking in the day. The person who is, is compelled by the fear of death and by earthly consequences, whose life is about deciding what, their, what risks there are and trying to ensure the at least the longest possible lifespan here, that person is already walking as though they were dead. They're already being uh, led by the grave. And so they're walking at night. What, what this call to be alive by faith is it's really incumbent on us to continue to walk by faith, to make decisions that are based on a certainty that God has us, that the um, outcome is decided and is in his hand. In 1 John 5, 3, B through 4, continuing from that per previous reading from 1 John 5, he says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. 
for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Could I suggest to you that everyone in the world has a survival mindset? It's only those who have resurrection faith who can overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, if we have resurrection faith, we've overcome the world. And if we've overcome the world, what is that going to look like in our life? 1 John 5, 18 through 20, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. What did Jesus say? I'm going to keep them safe, right? What's he keeping them safe from? From sin. Here's the irony is that we're so concerned about our physical safety, and yet that concern for physical safety, it demonstrates that we don't have resurrection faith. And if we don't have resurrection faith, that we're not in his fold, we're not being kept safe from him, by him from the real threat, and that is sin. He says that that person doesn't continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. How is the world under the control of the evil one? Hebrews 2, he says, through the fear of death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, through the fear of death, these people were enslaved all their life by, uh, by the devil, the one who had the control of those reins. Okay, so here's what I want to suggest is that this that to seek glory from God is, can only be done by somebody who believes in the resurrection. Because guess what? When we seek to empty ourselves and to glorify God, and we do that like Jesus did unto death, God had better come in, right? We better start living for what's coming after this, for, uh, for the reward that he's bringing with him. And if we do that, that's the kind of faith that overcomes the world. And if we have the faith that overcomes the world, what happens is that we can overcome sin. And that's the real danger. That's the threat. That's the wolf um, that is waiting at the door all the way back in Genesis Sin is, is depicted as this predator waiting to consume. And John is saying, Jesus through John, that this that wolf cannot attack the one who has resurrection faith, who is living by resurrection faith. And we do that in small ways throughout our life, right? Where we, where we follow our conscience and we do what we know what God's spirit is calling us to do even though from a natural perspective, it's going to cost us influence. It's going to cost us reputation. It may cost us uh, financially. It may cost us our safety physically. And yet there's this ongoing uh, decision to walk by faith, to pursue the glory of God in this, in this realm. And in doing so, we begin to over, we can overcome the world and the sin that is in the world. And so John 5, 20 says, we know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding light so that we may know him is, who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so we live by faith.
if by faith we live, we conduct ourselves according to not just any faith, but resurrection faith, and don't die of doubt. The real danger in this um, story in John 11 is doubt. In fact, Lazarus is not the one in danger, and, and Jesus is not the one in danger. In fact, the ones in danger are the disciples. In John 11, 11 through 15b, Jesus um, takes up this um, notion, uh, you know, he, he ex- continues his explanation as to why he's going back to Jerusalem. It says, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. Now for Jesus, death is sleep. He's not using a euphemism because the difference between death and sleep is sleep is something you wake up from, right? And so Jesus is depicting the Christian view of death as sleep. And he is prefiguring what's coming at his return, that he's going to come and awaken his own. But in this case, he's going to do it Um, He's going to prefigure it through Lazarus. And so his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Uh, And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Now, why did they miss this? It's because they don't see uh, death as sleep. They see death as the end, right? They see this illness as potentially terminal. And when Jesus says there are no terminal illnesses anymore, And so uh, then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. Let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) I took out that middle phrase. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad. How many times uh, would you expect to hear somebody say, they're dead and I'm glad? I I hope not many. It would probably be a negative thing. But for Jesus, he really is highlighting the real danger that people face, that Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. What he's saying is is that it's better for Lazarus to die if it will lead you to faith. Now, these disciples have been with Jesus this whole time, haven't they? You know, they've been along for the ride, and yet... Here they are, right? Jesus is saying, I I want you to believe that doubt has been along for the ride this whole way. And and so in, in John 1, 48 through 50, one of the major themes in this book is that faith isn't something that you get once and then you're done with it. Faith is something that continues to grow and that we continue to exercise and receive. Um, and that doubt is something that is uh, waiting there for the believer along the road. Uh, so Jesus has just told his disciples, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But, you know, back in John 1, we saw that Nathaniel had basically, you know, he'd made the good confession. He'd said, you're the rabbi, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, do you, do you believe just because of this? You'll see greater. And John 2, 11, you know, after the waters turned to wine, it says the disciples saw this and um, they believed. And John 2, 23, we see this continuum of faith through others as well. 
You know, it says while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many saw, many people saw the signs he was performing and they believed. But then it says, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. That all along the way, faith is on the continuum and that people are being invited to believe in progressively greater measures. Um, and so we might think of Christian growth as something where maybe you start attending church and then you um, read the Bible and then uh, you come to uh, perhaps serve in a ministry. But according to the book of John, there's just believe in Jesus and then believe in Jesus and then believe in Jesus. These are the steps of spiritual growth. Um, and the to believe in Jesus is this idea of seeking the glory that comes only from God by glorifying God in our lives. In John 5, 44, Jesus says to these religious people, and religious people are just as susceptible to disbelieve as anybody. And he says to the Pharisees, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another? But do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Why are people religious who don't have this kind of life, who aren't seeking the glory of God and the glory that comes from God? Why are they religious? Well, uh, for the same reason that anybody else uh, in, takes in hand to participate in some cause. Um, we have a real need to transcend our animal mortality. Ernest Becker, the uh, psychologist uh, from the 1950s and 60s, um, some, somehow, you know, somewhat related to Freud's uh, psychoanalytic school, wrote a book called The Denial of Death, where he argues that much of, of human behavior is about trying to transcend this terror of death, that we are these beings who are animals, um, and that as soon as the blood drains out of your brain and your brain cells uh, become hypoxic, that you're, this great noble creature is now just worm food. And uh, what do we do with that? And, and so Becker casts a lot of, of psychology against that dichotomy. And in his book, he says, man's best efforts seem utterly fallible without appeal to something higher for justification. Some conceptual support for the meaning of one's life from a transcendental dimension of some kind. As this belief has to absorb man's basic terror, it cannot be merely abstract, but must be rooted in the emotions, in an inner feeling that one is secure in something stronger, larger, more important than one's own strength and life. It is as though one were to say, my life pulse ebbs away, I fade away into oblivion, but God, or it, remains, even grows more glorious with and through my living sacrifice. At least this feeling is belief at its most effective for the individual. And so Becker is explaining kind of a religious drive. But what I would like to point out here is that it, that word sacrifice, that that there's some way that uh, God is benefiting from us besides or beyond our own just love for him, our faithfulness, our obedience in the moment. 
that there is a drive and a need in the human species to to aspire to become some sort of a hero to live on in human memory. Um, and Becker says that this drive can can take all kinds of forms. Uh, Becker says this, he says, all perversions then can be truly seen as private religions, as attempts to heroically transcend the human condition and to achieve some kind of satisfaction in that condition. That is why perverts are forever saying how superior and life-enhancing their particular approach is. They cannot understand why anyone would not prefer it. So there is this drive that can drive uh, a religious person as well as somebody who perhaps is advancing something that would be aberrant and that most people would say, no, that that is an unhealthy way to approach life. And yet this person sees themselves as the hero of the story. In uh, Becker's Denial of Death, he goes on and says, uh, we mentioned the meaner side of man's urge to cosmic heroism, but there is obviously the noble side as well. Man will lay down his life for his country, his society, his family. He will choose to throw himself on a grenade to save his comrades. He is capable of the highest generosity and self-sacrifice, but he has to feel and believe that what he is doing is truly heroic, timeless, and supremely meaningful. And so we have this longing to be the hero in our own story. We want to aspire. We want to achieve. We want to make ourselves glorious rather than giving over ourselves to God, to being willing to descend into obscurity, that the drive to be a hero is in fact, uh, while religious in nature, not rooted in resurrection faith. Because Jesus did not die a hero. He died a criminal, uh, crying out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And according to the uh, author of the Hebrew letter, he did it for his own sake as much as ours, that he died for the glory set before him. And so there's, there's not this self-congratulatory hero mentality, but there is a confident trust in God the Father that allows a person to relinquish themselves into his hands and find him faithful. And so the message of the gospel is that Jesus died because God is faithful, because he can be trusted. And, and that's something that I think Thomas, uh, who comes later to embody doubt, misses in this story. And so as we get to John eleven fifteen 15 C, Thomas says this, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That Thomas has this hero mentality. You know, I heard someone once give a sermon talking about Thomas's redeeming qualities and listed this among them. That is not what's going on here. That is not how he is portrayed. The same doubt that we find at the end of John where he says, unless I put my finger into his wounds, I won't believe, is operational here. Thomas does not 
foresee a resurrection from the dead. He fantasizes about a glorious death here and what might be said about him or this great price that he can pay for the thing that he believes in. And that is not a Christian instinct that is rooted in this virtue-based society where we want to celebrate our fallen heroes and create all this fanfare and everything so that somebody who we're calling on to perhaps give up their life for the cause can fantasize about what would be said about them. Oh, the songs that would be sung, the poems that would be written, the banners that would be flown, the words that would be recited over them, how they would go on in the living memory of those who knew them. And all of this is the antithesis of life. It is rooted in unbelief and it is symbolic of what really is this influence in the world that is death. And so out of his doubt, Thomas makes what sounds like a heroic gesture. Let us go that we may die with him. You know, I I think one of the major reasons that John included this episode in this story is because of what's said in John 11, 2. Says this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. What's interesting about this mention of Mary at this point is, is that she hasn't come up in the book of John yet. She's actually not going to come up until John chapter 12. Um, and so, and yet John refers to her, what she did in the past tense. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, what did Jesus say uh, when, she did, when she did what she did, right? Let this go with the story. And so John is writing several years after the earlier gospels and into where there's already a standing Jesus tradition. And it is my feeling in this that, and you could disagree with me, but it is my feeling that people had begun to venerate Mary as a moral exemplar as somebody who should be celebrated next to Jesus, that Jesus is this exemplar in that he gave his life so heroically and that Mary is this exemplar in that she poured out this perfume so heroically. And John wants us to know that Mary was no hero. If we would just look a little ways down and we're going to unpack this as we get farther into John. But when Jesus comes finally after waiting two days, Uh, Martha goes out to meet him, but Mary stays in the house. Why do you think that is? And then finally, Jesus compels Mary to come out, so she complies. And as soon as she gets there, she, she says, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened, right? So she's not some great exemplar. She's petulant. She's pouty. She's critical of Jesus and his decisions. And yet something happens, Something takes place from the time when she calls Jesus out for not showing up until uh, then we find her again in chapter 12, emptying this, this vase or this perfume onto Jesus' feet. And the difference is she has seen the power of the resurrection, that she has found resurrection faith, and that this 
gift, this offering is an affirmation of the truth of the resurrection, that she's not offering some grand sacrifice or making some sacrifice and giving away something that has any real value at all, but that she is confessing how little value anything has here because of the life to come. And so in, in telling the story of what she's done, we, we are telling the story of how this woman came to believe the gospel. She came to resurrection faith before Jesus died. And isn't that what Jesus said about her in Mark 14, three through nine? It says, while he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? When, when somebody is religious because they want to aspire to some sort of earthly significance, that's the kind of objection that they make. Think of all of the good we can do. Think of all of the problems that we can solve. Think of how we can build a legacy for ourselves with that, this money. What have you done? And Jesus, um, you know, they, they say it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Again, this is not rooted in an expectation of a new world to come, of a resurrection life. This is mired in the unbelieving religious instinct to somehow solve the world's problems through our collective efforts. And that's the kind of doubt that is deadly and that this story would warn us against. And it is the kind of, of religiosity that Mary defies in her gift. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. What's beautiful about it? He says, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body to prepare for my burial. Mary has already let Jesus go. She's confessed that he must die. Where Peter is saying, far be it from you, Lord. Mary understands and has received and accepted God's will, God's plan, God's glory. This instinct, this, this drive, this rhythm that is life that I will pour myself out for his glory in total obscurity, in, in a myriad of tiny ways that no one may ever notice, but it's because I believe in the life to come. And I believe that that is worth living and dying for. And that is the kind of faith that gives life. Everything else is deadly doubt. And so by faith we live if we live by faith and don't die of doubt. Mm -hmm.